When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's 1993, and in a condo in Fremont, California, three young engineers are figuring out how to get their new semiconductor business off the ground. And we would get together, and, and there would be nothing to do. I mean, what do you do? You got three guys and get together, you just talk. One of them was 30-year-old Jensen Huang. It was like, could you put some donuts in the fridge in the morning for when we come? I mean, so that would be a big deal for a while. And so that lasted for a few months, just the three of us like that. After much deliberation over these important issues, the trio got down to business. They saw that video games were both computationally challenging and in high demand, a rare combination. As such, they decided to build NVIDIA, a company that would design graphics chips for use in gaming. The Silicon Valley venture capitalists, however, were not convinced. And they told me there was no video game market. People don't start companies to play games. But they were wrong. Graphics cards have underpinned waves of computationally intense technologies, from gaming to self-driving cars and crypto mining. For 30 years, NVIDIA's chips have shaped what is possible, dominating the market. In 2006, Jensen Huang, as NVIDIA's CEO, made another bet, launching software that would make his graphics chips programmable for use in artificial intelligence. It was the start of a shift towards AI. And so the reinvention process is very challenging, it's gut-wrenching, takes a lot of courage, and um, it, it really tests your conviction. Once again, that bet appears to be paying off. People have been getting really excited finally about artificial intelligence and generative AI and chat GPT and all this stuff. And NVIDIA probably is the purest way to play that theme. And so that's been driving a, a lot of demand, I think, for the shares. The first version of ChatGPT was trained on a supercomputer made up of 10,000 NVIDIA graphics cards. NVIDIA, because as I said many times, it's their underlying tech stuff that powers everything that we see in this space. They're so far ahead of everybody. NVIDIA itself is now one of the world's top 10 most valuable companies. Its market capitalization has far eclipsed that of Intel, once the world's mightiest chip designer and maker. But for NVIDIA and the other companies who are building fortunes on computing infrastructure, the future is far from certain. What happens if the AI gold rush is just a flash in the pan? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In Palm Beach, Florida, I'm Alice Fullwood. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. And in today's show, the astonishing rise of NVIDIA. First, we'll hear how the launch of ChatGPT has fueled demand for NVIDIA's key product, 
there's going to be an enormous boom in demand for AI coming over the next few years. What that means is that we need loads and loads of chips to train the AI models. Then we examine how and why NVIDIA came to define the AI market. This is sort of their 30-year journey to overnight success, right? This is something that they've been laying the groundwork for for years and even decades, and it's finally coming to fruition. And finally, we ask what, if anything, could topple the company from its perch. Facebook is trying to develop a chip, and Microsoft is trying to develop a chip, and Amazon is developing a lot of different chips. So everybody is trying to do chips. The challenge here is that in chip architecture, you don't have the free lunch. Mike, Tom, hello. Hi, Alice. Alice, the thing that I, and I'm sure many of our listeners want to know is Palm Beach. I may be wrong here, but as far as I know, that's not exactly a major banking hub. So how have you managed to swing that one? Yeah, it's not a a financial center just yet, although there are a lot of hedge fund managers who spend a lot of time here as well. But I'm actually on assignment for our bumper summer double issue, which means that I get to do slightly more frivolous things than I usually do. Over the next couple of days, I will be doing some sunrise yoga and a screening of Legally Blonde. We either need to look very seriously at changing our expenses policy or Tom and I (laughs) just need to become a lot more ambitious about how we use ours, one or the other. Yeah, I reckon you guys need to up your game. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. But returning to more serious matters, we are here today to talk about chips. Yeah, so we've all been inundated with news about ChatGPT recently and all the other new generative AI products out there. But the companies that make the hardware that powers those programs are also having a, a bit of a moment right now. Exactly. And we are talking about NVIDIA today because this is probably the firm, apart from OpenAI itself, of course, that has really come into its own as excitement about AI has exploded. During the gold rush in America, those that really made a fortune were often not the people panning for gold, but those selling the picks and the shovels or people that own railroads or other infrastructure. And the equivalent for the AI boom is the people selling chips and specifically NVIDIA's chips which are needed to run the CUDA software that NVIDIA developed and is very popular with AI developers. So that seems pretty clever of them. Nice way to build a sort of business case if you're not only building the hardware, but building the software that developers use to build those AI tools, which will only work on their hardware. Yes, that is exactly correct. And the man who's been following this more closely than anyone else is The Economist's US tech editor, Guy Scriven. And I want to bring him in here. Guy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Happy to be here. So how much attention were you paying to NVIDIA before its share price went through the roof over the last month? Well, I was probably paying a bit of attention, but probably not as much as I could have been. NVIDIA is a really interesting story. For years and years, it was basically quite a niche player in the chip market. So if you look back at 2016, its market cap then was still about $10 billion. For years, it was designing chips for gamers. And so it got very good at designing chips that were good at rendering computer graphics. But at some point in the past few decades, we realized that chips that are good at rendering computer graphics are also very good at calculating the huge mathematical equations that are needed to perform AI. And so NVIDIA's chips basically found a new market in AI. 
On top of that, the other thing they've done, which was basically very smart, is they've invested very heavily in their software platform. And they do things like they go to universities and they teach professors how to teach their students about their software platforms. They give access to their chips and with them the software platform away free to AI researchers. And by doing this, it's basically developed a large kind of ecosystem of AI experts who all were kind of brought up using NVIDIA's CUDA platform. So CUDA is the name of the piece of software. So what has happened over the last month or so to spark what is now being called this AI gold rush? Why is the popularity of ChatGPT benefiting companies like NVIDIA? Excitement started to build around this area with the release of ChatGPT back in November. So since then, you've had ever more releases of new kind of products infused by AI from really big tech firms, from medium-sized tech firms like Adobe and Salesforce, and from a huge bunch of startups and other kind of corporations as well. I guess what's become clearer over the last few months is that people are going to try to use AI to improve various types of software offerings. And there's going to be an enormous boom in demand for AI coming over the next few years. And what that means is that we need loads and loads of chips to train the AI models and to make use of them. And that's where NVIDIA comes in. That's what NVIDIA is kind of really good at making these chips. And this became clear in NVIDIA's earnings release. Yeah, absolutely. NVIDIA's last earnings, which was kind of a few weeks ago, was really impressive. They beat analysts' expectations for their kind of revenue in the first quarter of this year. They also basically told analysts in the current quarter, they expect their revenue to be about $11 billion, which again beat analysts' expectations. All of this is basically down to AI. So their AI business is completely booming and they can't ship enough chips. And that's obviously had an impact on the valuations of all of these companies, right? Yeah, absolutely. So if you take NVIDIA as an example, after its bumper earnings release uh, at the end of May, its share price jumped by 30%. And if you take a kind of even longer time span, so if you look at uh, NVIDIA's share price from the beginning of the year, it's almost tripled in that time. But it's not just NVIDIA. So we looked at a group of about 30 companies which do all sorts of things. So chips, cloud computing companies, companies that help put together AI servers that go into cloud computing data centers, companies that rent data center spaces, even companies that provide their heating elements for data centers as well. And on a kind of equally weighted basis, this basket of 30-odd companies has increased its share price by about 40% since the launch of ChatGPT in November. And that compares with about 13% increase of the NASDAQ Composite, which is kind of a tech-heavy index. So AI isn't just benefiting NVIDIA, it's benefiting a whole broad group of different companies in different industries. Now, as you suggested, there are a lot of different parts, hardware, software, etc., combined in making AI possible. We're going to hear a lot of these terms through the episode, things like GPU, CPU. So could you explain to us sort of a little bit about all of these different chips and to what extent they're needed to make artificial intelligence possible? Yeah, sure. So I think there's probably just two you really need to know about. One is called the CPU and the other is called the GPU. The CPU is a central processing unit and the GPU is the graphics processing unit. CPUs are kind of general purpose and they're good at a variety of different tasks. Graphics processing units, GPUs, are good at parallel processing, 
which means that they're basically very good at doing lots of tasks at the same time. So GPUs were originally used for gaming and were very good at rendering all the kind of pixels and the color of the pixels and the kind of shape of the pixels on a computer screen to make gaming run well. Being able to run lots of tasks simultaneously is also very useful for AI, particularly for training big AI models, because you have to basically do lots of mathematical equations lots of times over and also at the same time as well. And so the kind of boom in AI has hugely increased the kind of importance of GPUs and massively increased their demand. And the reason that benefited NVIDIA in particular is because it's the behemoth when it comes to GPUs, right? That's its special focus. Absolutely. Yeah, that's its special focus. It's been working on it for years. It has 80% of the market in GPUs. Other companies also make GPUs. So AMD is the closest competitor, but NVIDIA really holds the lion's share of the market. All right. And we're going to hear a bit more about NVIDIA in a second. But thank you so much for your time, Guy. Please stick around. We will come back to you a little bit later. My pleasure. As we just heard from Guy, NVIDIA is a crucial company for GPUs and is the dominant player in this space. Their breakthrough has really come as a direct result of the boom in AI. So to find out more about the company and how it got to where it is today, I spoke to Stacey Rasgon, who is a senior analyst at Bernstein covering the US semiconductor industry. Hello, Stacey. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks. The market capitalization of NVIDIA briefly surpassed a trillion dollars recently, and that multiples the market cap of most other chip makers and designers like TSMC, Intel, Samsung, AMD. It's also bigger than Meta, Tesla and Netflix. And so this firm really has just been catapulted into the biggest league of tech companies. Uh, you have to be clear, by the way, though, you know, that this company is over 30 years old. So this is sort of their 30-year journey to overnight success, right? This is not something that just happened over the last two months. This is something that they've been laying the groundwork for for years and even decades, and it's finally coming to fruition as artificial intelligence and generative AI and accelerated computing and everything finally start to go mainstream. I think people are finally waking up and recognizing that fact and it sort of set off a scramble now to start to deploy this technology finally after you know decades of getting ready. And because NVIDIA is sort of in the driver's seat, the markets finally have woken up to that fact. And here we are. What are the choices that NVIDIA made along that 30-year journey to put it in the position uh, to sort of have this success now then? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it comes down to creating not just the hardware itself, but the ecosystem around it. And so they have a, a software platform that they call CUDA which is used for, you know, parallel programming. And also they built tons of libraries and, and other capabilities on top of it. And this is something that they started developing in the early 2000s, maybe 2005, 2006, I think. And they got a lot of flack for it for many, many years. I mean, this was effectively like a $2 stock on today's share basis for many years as they were investing in this. It was limiting and impacting profitability and Jensen, you know, and, and the company held fast and they kept pushing forward on this, even at the expense of the long-term profitability, right? It took a long time, but they've created, like I said, not just the hardware, but also the software around it that's created a fairly sizable moat as well as vastly increased the usability of these technology and the ease of deployment. They've got a lot of folks that want to try to catch up to them now, like anybody that's trying to catch up has to now try to create their own software ecosystem against an ecosystem that is already entrenched, that is a very, very difficult thing to do. 
And there, at times, have definitely been choices that they've made about which technologies they think are going to be revolutionary, right? I covered the crypto boom when it was booming, and uh, it's not so booming anymore. But obviously, sort of NVIDIA chips were used to mine a lot of these currencies. And it seemed like there was a decision that maybe that wasn't going to be the killer use for these chips, and maybe that they were sort of working towards AI instead. They did develop some chips specifically for crypto mining, but it was more of an afterthought. They were trying to limit the crypto miners' desire to actually buy their gaming cards. So it clearly can be used for AI, but it was also used for cryptocurrency mining, in particular Ethereum. This was not something that the company worked hard necessarily to enable. It was just a fact. They were useful for mining Ethereum. And so the company started developing crypto-specific cards. And the reason was they didn't really want the miners to buy up all the GPUs because it really made the gamers upset. These things were in massive shortages. You couldn't buy a GPU for gaming if you tried. And so they were trying to limit that in some sense, to try to create products that were useful for the miners and actually were only useful for mining. And so they could try to bifurcate that market a little bit. It didn't work all that well, unfortunately, just because the demand at the time at the peak for cryptocurrency mining was so strong, you know, they could have shipped whatever they wanted on the crypto specific stuff and those got bought up, but it wasn't anywhere near enough what the demand was at the time. And by the way, we don't need to worry about it anymore. To the extent that people are still mining cryptocurrencies, they're not really buying GPUs to do it anymore. And so the fortunate thing for NVIDIA and even for the gamers that buy this is we never have to worry about a crypto bubble ever again, hopefully. Can we just talk a little bit about Jensen Huang himself? Because all the sort of big tech companies that I've mentioned at the beginning, like Meta and Tesla and Netflix, all those kinds, they have these very visionary founders who have driven those companies to that level of superstardom. Do you think Jensen Huang is made of the same stuff as them? It sounds like he's had a pretty clear vision for a long time. Clearly, like he's been thinking far enough ahead, right? And it looks like he's been right. The most visionary leaders, like they don't just recognize where they think things are going. They've actually been shaping the path that the industry has been taking. They've been creating the markets, right? So I think that is a characteristic that Jensen certainly has had. And I'm a sell-side uh, equity analyst, and they have these earnings calls, and you get on and people ask questions. And I remember especially like when they were going through like the crypto bust, right? And people were asking Jensen about like channel inventories. Do you think Jensen spends two seconds thinking about channel inventories? Like that's not presumably where he's spending his time. Like he's thinking, you know, 10 plus years out. I think on that note, we will probably leave it there. So uh, Stacey, thank you so much for joining the show. My pleasure. So Tom, Mike, and any listeners who need a quick primer, Channel inventories uh, relate to the way that chips are sold. So they're typically first sold to distributors. And when demand ebbs and flows, those distributors can see their inventories backing up a bit, which, you know, I really liked the sort of last point that Stacey made there, essentially about Jensen Huang, which is that he is this visionary guy. He made graphics chips for gaming when no one else was focused on that. That strategy turned out to be hugely useful because you could use these cards in all other kinds of things. And then years before anyone else, he started dedicating his entire firm to AI. So he's the type of person who's always thinking 10 years ahead about what demands for computing power will be. And so, of course, he isn't thinking about channel inventories. And because those long-term plans have paid off, NVIDIA is now the fifth largest listed firm in America. And much of that is thanks to the last few years of growth. But the foundation is, as Stacey said, 30 years in the making. So I've got an instinctive soft spot for Jensen Huang because there's that picture of him that came out a little while ago of him bumming around a Taipei night market. 
if you haven't been, is a place that sells some great food. And this was happening just as NVIDIA's market cap was hitting $1 trillion. And I really hope that's what I'd be doing if I made something worth a trillion dollars. It seems like a good way to spend your time regardless. I found all of this fascinating. And listening to it, I had two sort of immediate thoughts. One very similar to Alice in that you've got this element of sort of visionary brilliance or luck, depending on how you look at it. In 2006, I was 15. And I think like most people, I only really started thinking about AI and and the sort of major consequences of it in the past year or two. This guy was on top of it when James Blunt was constantly on the radio. Like this is a long, long time ago. We're not talking about something he got to slightly earlier than everyone else. This is a sort of enormously long-term bet for a company like that. And the other thing that makes me think is the sort of emptiness of what would have once been referred to as like quarterly capitalism, this idea that capital markets are really short-termist. This company IPO'd in the late 1990s, and it didn't crack $10 a share sustainably in any way until about 2016. And now our last check, it's something like $374. It, you know, it'll move around a little bit, but it's enormously valuable. We usually think of Amazon as an example of a company like that, that sort of bursts out of a, a range after a very long time. But maybe NVIDIA is going to turn out to be an even better case of the sort of proof of capital markets actually turning out to be pretty good vehicles at keeping these very long-term ambitious projects going, contrary to the story that we usually hear. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. Uh, there is part of me, though, that's a little wary about just how giddy NVIDIA's valuation has become. So its market capitalization has jumped to around 200 times earnings now, which is about 10 times the level of the S&P 500 as a whole. And Microsoft, another company that is seen as a likely big winner from the AI boom, is trading at around 35 times. And if you look at NVIDIA's share price over the last few years, it has tended to seesaw. So during the latest crypto craze, it surged, and then it dropped back down again, and now it's right back up again. And the swings in its valuation are are much more pronounced than the swings in its business fundamentals. So I don't doubt that Jensen Huang has been incredibly farsighted and that the company has built quite a robust competitive position here. But I think there's also some kind of feverish excitement going on based on these kind of giddy expectations for AI that have really yet to be proven out. On the topic of hype, the big news story in tech this week was the release of Apple's much-anticipated augmented reality headset, which is selling for a modest $3,500. Obviously, you'll eventually be able to use this to read your edition of The Economist, but until then, you might have to stick to the print digital editions. In this week's edition, we have a really, really interesting look at whether or not what Apple is calling spatial computing has the sort of potential to overtake smartphones and laptops as the next big platform and how we should expect the market for headsets to evolve in the years ahead. And you can read that piece and more for absolutely nothing by going to economist.com forward slash podcast offer for a free 30-day digital subscription if you're not a subscriber already. After the break, we'll find out what could threaten NVIDIA's dominance in the AI boom and what happens to these companies if AI itself goes bust. Thank you. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Before the break, we heard how the early bets NVIDIA made decades ago have massively paid off. Now, the company isn't just at the forefront of AI technology, it's essentially defined the market with its hardware and software becoming indispensable for the development of AI as it is today. But technology is defined by change, and there are lots of other companies eager to overtake NVIDIA completely. So to learn more about where the technology could go from here, I spoke to Pierre Faragu, who heads up the Global Technology Infrastructure Research Team at New Street Research. Hello, Pierre. Welcome to Money Talks. Hi, Alice. Thanks for having me. So there's been a lot of focus in the news recently about NVIDIA and the role it's playing in making AI software possible. But it's not the only chip designer or technology firm that is benefiting from this AI gold rush. So could you help us broaden the story? What tech do you need to train and run uh, AI software? Yes. So... The GPU is really today at the center of AI training and inference. And the reason why we see so many people buying so many GPUs is that you need a lot of them to train a model. You're talking like tens of thousands. And you need a lot of them also to run inference. So when you are using ChatGPT, you have at least eight GPUs working all together at the same time for you during this use case. And if you have like 100 million people using ChatGPT at the same time, then you will need these eight GPUs multiplied by 100 million as well. The key is to make these GPUs capable of working together on one very large model, which requires a lot of data flowing very rapidly and with very low latency between GPUs. And to do that, you need to create what we call a GPU cluster. And to make it very simple, from the GPU, you will need to get into memory. Then you'll need system memory where you can store broader data set or broader model you're working on. And then you'll need interconnects between GPUs inside a server and a networking interconnect between servers. So that gives you like um, an idea um, of the key elements you need to help GPUs share the data between each other. And then in addition to that, you need two things that tend to be forgotten. One is you need to coordinate these GPUs to tell them what to do. And so to do that, you need like more traditional CPUs, like typically like Intel CPUs. And then the last one, usually if you're running a big language model, you can very safely bet that it is going to get integrated into a broader service like a search, for instance. So the future of ChatGPT is to be able to brief you on the news and latest development and things that are happening at the moment. And so that's what I call like the backbone of the cloud, of the internet, that will need to grow a lot to accommodate for these AI servers as well. So the broader technology infrastructure, like the broader network between the data centers and users, the content delivery networks, all, everything is going to be positively influenced 
by the very large-scale deployment of AI we are witnessing today. There are lots of firms involved in the AI infrastructure then, but NVIDIA is still totally dominant in the most crucial part, which is the GPUs. Is there anyone that can compete with it? If you take it from a blank sheet of paper, you have a lot of ways to do AI that will be even more efficient than a GPU. So for instance, today in a GPU, data is sitting in the memory and the GPU goes to the memory, processes the data and puts it back into the memory. And so you have a back and forth with the memory. That is a very, very um, entrenched way to design a chip. You fetch the data, you process it, you send it back. You could create a chip in which the data, instead of doing that, is flowing through a chip and moving directly to the next chip without stopping by the memory. And to give you an idea, when you do that, you do the same math about 10 times faster. So you have a company like Google, who 10 years ago in 2012 started working on a chip working like that. That's the TPU. So the TPU, on a like-for-like basis, if everything else is about equal, is about five times faster or more efficient than a GPU because it adopts this architecture that we call the data flow architecture, where the data is flowing through the chips without stopping by in memory. Then you have like a startup named Cerebrus who has designed a very, very large chip that is architected on the same model, on the data flow model. That chip can go 10 times even more than a GPU as well. So you have a lot of people, Facebook is trying to develop a chip and Microsoft is trying to develop a chip and Amazon is developing a lot of different chips. So everybody is trying to do chips. The challenge here is that in chip architecture, you don't have a free lunch. If you make your chip 10 times faster, you need to make fantastic, enormous compromises in terms of flexibility. So today, a chip like the Google TPU, a chip like Cerebras are five to 10 times faster than the same generation GPU, but they are also five to 10 times less flexible. The other big risk for all of these companies is that the sort of AI boom isn't what is hoped, right? What do you think could happen that would make this all seem like a lot of hype and not actually everything that was dreamed of? It's a very good question. And we have like to leave the technical field of chip architecture and things like that and just talk about business dynamics. A handful of very large companies and thousands of smaller companies see this magical chat GPT-4 and they use it and they're like, oh my God, it's unbelievable. And they feel like they can't afford to miss that term. So they make the investments, but they don't really know what they're going to do with chat GPT-4. From here, you really have two scenarios. The integration of these models to your business is flawless, is picking up, and you see usage increasing. And remember, this server with eight GPUs that you need to deliver ChatGPT to every user, it's a $150,000 server. And you'll have to buy thousands of them to keep delivering the service to your clients. And if you don't do it, your competitors will do it. Or it might be that in a year from now, all these companies feel like there isn't like an easy path to adopt large language models beyond the hype and the very impressive performance of these models. It actually doesn't have that much of an impact on your business model. So imagine a law firm investing in a lot of GPUs to have ChatGPT help them in court. And then after ChatGPT embarrasses them in court 12 times, they're like, enough is enough. We stop doing that. We'll see what happens. And nobody can anticipate what's going to happen. Thank you so much, Pierre. That was really enlightening. Thank you for joining the show. Thank you for having me again, Alice. Anytime. I'm back now with The Economist's US tech correspondent, Guy Scriven. 
Guy, thank you so much for hanging around. No problem. It seems like there are two sort of main ways in which the explosion of NVIDIA's market cap could come undone. And one is a competitive threat. So Google's TPUs or another graphics card maker catches up with it. Our guests seem to think that's going to be pretty tough. Is that your assessment as well? Yeah, I think I would agree with that. NVIDIA is just in a really strong position. They have huge market share in GPUs overall. They have the software moat of CUDA. And I think that's incredibly important. It means that all the developers that you try to hire and AI experts all know how to use this software and program and basically want to use it. They also have a big advantage in the kind of AI networking space as well, which is really important. They bought an AI networking company back a few years ago, which basically kind of helps provide links between all their GPUs, which means that they can sell their GPUs as a kind of big package along with the networking equipment as well. And so I think they're in a strong position, really. It's kind of their game to lose. And I guess the sort of other big risk here is that AI isn't all it's cracked up to be. You know, maybe it's not as useful as we thought. Maybe lawmakers try to regulate it to sort of limit the power of AI. So what are you thinking about that might get in the way of this AI revolution? There are lots of things that could happen. One, which is obviously playing out now, and which is why kind of NVIDIA is in the news and so important at the moment, is a kind of shortage of chips. There's very clearly a shortage of GPUs out there. That kind of demand will be met at some point. But, you know, there's also a risk in that almost all of NVIDIA's chips are made by TSMC, this Taiwanese company that manufactures 90% of the world's leading edge chips. So a huge amount of the chip industry, particularly around AI, is reliant on two monopolies, more or less. That is a kind of risk to the industry. Other things that could get in the way, regulators are obviously looking more carefully at AI at the moment. The EU has proposed a law that would restrict AI chatbots, as well as do a number of other things too. Probably the kind of bigger risks is that something very bad happens with AI in the public sphere, you know, the kind of hacker overturns a major stock market or hacks into kind of an electricity grid using a new AI model or something like that. And I think that kind of thing, which if you speak to AI researchers, something is kind of reasonably likely to happen. That kind of thing would basically create a public backlash and a political backlash against AI. And I think if that happened, you'd see governments all over the world clamping down on AI as much as they could very, very quickly. And I think that would be a bigger threat to the AI revolution. But I think for NVIDIA, the thing to worry about is because of this new big focus on AI, all the companies that want a piece of the pie will kind of redouble their efforts on AI specialist chips and networking equipment and software as well. Guy, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great. Thanks, Alice. All the best. So, Mike, Tom, what do you make of what you've heard? Yeah, from a financial market perspective, I really, really find this sort of stuff interesting. We've got this new rapidly improving technology that suddenly everyone is talking about. You know, we've seen those charts of the number of mentions of AI on investor calls and stuff like that just going absolutely parabolic. Nobody is entirely sure how rapidly it's going to improve from here, what it's going to change in terms of different industries, sectors, ways of doing things. 
or where any of the value of doing it is going to accrue. So pricing all that is somewhere between difficult and impossible. Clearly, people are sure this is worth an absolutely enormous amount of money because you've got hundreds of billions of dollars of extra value being priced into, for example, just this company. Yeah, I find all that really fascinating. And I think it gets to questions for me of where you should see value accruing in these sort of situations. We often get bogged down thinking about, for example, the early years of the internet and that sort of first wave of internet platform companies that did enormously well. Amazon, Google, even Facebook towards the back end, coming essentially from startup stage, then becoming enormous, then becoming the biggest companies in the US, biggest companies in the world. It doesn't always work like that, right? Sometimes you have these technological improvements and they accrue to, you know, existing giants or or companies that have just been around for a long time, like NVIDIA, could be Google, could be any number of firms. Yeah, I find all this really fascinating. And I think what I find interesting about the sort of volatility that Tom was talking about previously in the market is the fact that it's all so massively uncertain. Even if you knew what was going to happen with the technology, you wouldn't necessarily know how to price any of this. Yeah. And I mean, just building on that point around uncertainty, I suppose I do have a bit of a suspicion that right now we're in the kind of irrationally exuberant phase of the hype cycle around generative AI and all the excitement from ChatGPT. At the very least, I think it's worth keeping the bear case in mind here. So everyone from Microsoft to Adobe to Salesforce is embedding generative AI in their tools, but it's going to take quite a bit of time for most businesses to land on new ways of operating that best leverage the technology. And that's always the case here, from electricity to the internet. And in the case of generative AI, I think there's also some specific barriers that companies are going to face, but particularly with the concerns around the reliability of the output from these tools. And then I think the second risk, as Guy rightly points out, is the potential for a public backlash against these technologies. There's already plenty of anxiety out there on issues like misinformation. And with the US presidential election coming up next year, I suspect we're going to see a whole lot more concern around that going forward. And if the AI hype cycle starts to die down, as it has done in the past, I think NVIDIA's share price could take something of a beating. Yeah, I feel like I came into this episode with essentially the sort of same question that the two of you seem quite fixated on, which is, can NVIDIA possibly be worth this much money? Can it possibly be a trillion dollar company? As Tom pointed out earlier in the show, it's trading at something like 200 times earnings. That's about 40 times revenue. It's such an extreme valuation. Uh, It really does sort of call to mind the sort of dot-com bubble. And with the financial markets background, it's easy to look at that and go, oh, this all must be very frothy, hype, bubbly stuff. And in the process of essentially sort of reading Guy's work on this and doing the interviews for this show, I have come to understand at least the bull case for this company, which is that it has a sort of extreme dominance over the tech that's required to make this work. It probably plays a key role in it being able to exist in the first place. And one of the things that 
I find interesting is it it's not just that sort of idea that lifted NVIDIA to a trillion dollars. It's also that it started seeing the gains from that accrue in its earnings statements, right? So it came out with these bumper revenues from data centers. It provided guidance that its sort of revenues were going to be sort of double in Q2 what they were in the previous year. So investors definitely bought the hype in NVIDIA. And then the company was able to show that that hype was translating into sort of real economic value for it. Now, if it's just the phase where everyone is experimenting with AI and therefore buying all their stuff and that goes away, then of course, it's not worth anything near what it's trading at today. And I think I agree with Tom, there's definitely a lot of frothiness in there. But I do understand why people have got so excited about NVIDIA. Even if it does turn out to be all hype, the sort of market getting ahead of itself. I almost find it quite reassuring that with the Fed fund rate at 5% that that can happen. That's quite a nice thing, you know? Um, We we always said this was all sort of a, a cheap money thing in 2020, 2021. If you can have interest rates where they are and people can still have a demented bubble, uh, you know, future chasing episode like this, then I think that's something nice about that. Nothing can kill American animal spirits, not even uh, 5.5% interest rates. And on that note, we should probably turn to our stats of the week. Right. Well, I'm happy to uh, kick us off here. So after sharing such a downbeat stat last week about homelessness in San Francisco, I've decided to go with something a little bit more positive this week. So my figure is $1.7 trillion, which is the amount of investment in green energy that the International Energy Agency is expecting for this year globally. And that will trounce the roughly $1 trillion invested in coal, gas, and oil. And if you go back just five years ago, that ratio between the two was about one to one. So obviously there's still a lot more investment needed in decarbonization, but it's nice to know we are heading in the right direction at least. Is that enough? Is that enough money? I've got no way of conceptualizing these things. You know, is, is 1.7 trillion good? Did we need to do, you know, 17 trillion? I don't know what the figures are here. Yeah, to think they could have bought 1.7 NVIDIAs with all that money. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Sack off the solar. Let's get a few more NVIDIAs going. My stat of the week is 71.1 million. And that is the number of animal livestock in Mongolia, according to Mongolia's annual livestock census last year. Uh, It's the highest amount since they started doing the census in 1918. And if anyone would like to have a guess at the proportion of, let's say, sheep in that number, what percentage sheep make up? Having not spent much time in Mongolia, I really have no, uh, (laughs) no sense of that at all. I don't know, Alice, what about you? I feel like there could be a lot of goats in there too, because they make a lot of cashmere. Mm. So I'm going to go with about half sheep. But uh, just while we're playing a guessing game, does anyone want to guess where Mike was on holiday last week? (laughs) (laughs) I was doing the animal census. No, I wasn't doing the animal census, but I was in Mongolia. (laughs) Alice, you're actually pretty close. 46% sheep. Horses, obviously, famous in Mongolia, but they're only 6.8%. Mongolia's got about three, somewhere between three and three and a half million people. So quite a lot of animals per person. And everyone in Mongolia seems to know this. They seem to know what the latest number from the animal census is, <laughs> which I quite enjoyed. Mike, I feel like we've got a bit of a, uh, a theme going here. I think a few weeks ago we had the ratio of sheep to people in New Zealand. So it seems like you've uh, stumbled upon a, a rich seam of statistics here. Yeah, I'm a big fan of animal-heavy, people-thin countries, clearly. Yeah, this is going to come up a lot. <laughs> 
Right. And uh, just to put an end to this animal fat, people thin chat, I'm going to just dive into my set of the week, which is minus 49%, which is the change year over year in investor purchases of real estate in America. So investors have really backed off from buying houses in the US. That was mostly driven by institutional investors and something called iBuyers, which are these tech companies that sort of offer people bids on their houses sight unseen. Those groups' purchases are down by about 80%. Right. We nearly got away there with an entirely non-miserable set of statistics. I guess that one, it's not (laughs) totally miserable, but it's probably not good either. So yeah, you sort of ruined that one, Alice, I'm afraid. I mean, it's a negative, so it's, you know, there's a minus Yeah, it's a minus, it. it's a minus figure. I can see the minus figure coming and I thought, no, no, this isn't going to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've nicked uh, Mike's classic of always uh, doing negative numbers. And on that slightly gloomier note, all that is left to do is thank Stacey Rasgon and Pierre Faragi. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Ting Lei Lim. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alice Fullwood. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.